This podcast is created in partnership with Breakthrough. My name is Lauren Stockman-Brown. I'm going to be your host today. Thanks for tuning in. Before we dive into our topics that we're going to discuss and you say your bio, I'm going to share a bit about my Callful Nana and what we do and how I think that we connect so beautifully. Why I thought it was so amazing to bring you on here, um, a part of my Callful Nana, how it started was first just as a school project. Um, and it's grown so much in a really amazing way to where we have super influential people like yourself hopping on um, and, and and requesting to be on it. And that was just such a special moment for me as well and our team um, to see all the work that you've done and to see how like, oh my gosh, like, are we like almost on their level maybe um but it's been really amazing um to be a part of this team we focus on topics like black hair but we also dive into various other topics such as today we're going to focus on mass incarceration um I'm so excited to dive in to hear your story. I know that there's some personal ties, there's historical ties, there's logistical ties um and I just want to hear more of of what you do and why you do it. So, Ebony, if you want to introduce yourself, please please feel free. Hi, thank you so much, Lauren. It is my pleasure to be here today. My name is Ebony Underwood. She, her. I am a content creator, uh, filmmaker, a daughter, <laughs> a mother, and um, yeah, I'm also the founder CEO of We Got Us Now. Inc. Incredible. Incredible. So, Ebony, I'm going to dive into We Got Us Now first. I think it would be incredible to hear more about um, the historical ties between mass incarceration, Jim Crow, and slavery. I feel as though people forget how embedded this is in our system and our society. And I know we could do a long breath of what the historical context is, but to start us off with just, you know, telling us the bullet points of what you've learned and it's uh, of mass incarceration and its relation to these other historical um, topics that seem to be misconstrued consistently. Yeah. What I, what I learned um, was that, well, 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 my first correlation between mass incarceration and just the historical context of slavery in America was um, primarily through the new Jim Crow, uh, Michelle Alexander's book. And then, you know, taking a deeper dive into just thinking about the experience. So, um, as I said, I'm a daughter. My father has been incarcerated for the last 32 years in in federal prison. And, um, during his incarceration, you know, reading the new Jim Crow, I started to see like, wow, it it brought up so many emotions for me because I just remembered through the years visiting all across the country. My father's been in eight different federal facilities across the country. And just thinking about like, what that was and what that actually means and and the separation of my my father and the over incarceration of you know black people here in this country and um you know it it, it becomes like you know the realization of what you 
what I, I'll say me, what I experienced um, became very profound for me. Um, just to give you some background, like I was not, I did not talk about my father's incarceration for the majority of the time that he's been incarcerated. I did not talk about it. Like only my family and maybe like my best friend really knew. I did not talk about it publicly. And that is just like, that's one of the repercussions of this experience. Like because of the shame, because of the stigma, because of the trauma of the experience, you know, most young people don't talk about this. And so, you know, me, I was no different. Uh, And when I did decide to talk about it, it was only when I had heard that the Obama administration decided that they wanted to right their wrongs. Like they said, we need to right our wrongs in this country. And so, you know, prosecutors from his administration or the, I'm sorry, Eric Holder, who is the um, was the lead uh, AG at the time, attorney general, he and 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 prosecutors under him decided that they were they were going to right the wrongs. And I'm like, right the wrongs. And it's interesting because my father at that point had been incarcerated for 25 years and um, me and my siblings were just extremely exhausted just exhausted by this experience because not number one, my father had never stopped being a dad. He's always been a a really present father um, and has always been saying that he, you know, he wanted to come home. Like, you know, I've been over incarcerated. I should be home. Like the laws that have been here that have applied that that have come down and they've sentenced me under have today been overturned and overruled and I should no longer be here. But every time he would go to appeal, (laughs) there would be case law that would apply to him. But there was this caveat with the case law. It would say. The case law does apply to you. No, the case. I'm sorry. Let me say this again. The caveat would be that the case law only applies to new cases. So although everything in your case, you're right. Everything in this case does apply to you. (laughs) But we don't we don't apply those. We don't apply this law to old cases. It's only for cases moving forward. And so basically you're saying if I got sentenced tomorrow, the case would apply, the law would apply to me, but because I was sentenced many years ago, the case is the law doesn't apply to me. So I'm just stuck here in legal limbo. And that's literally what it would be. And for me, of course, I had no idea what that meant. You know, like that happened a several, a couple of times, many times now that I think about it. And it's just like, what do you mean? Like, this doesn't make sense. What are you saying? You know, my father would explain this to us and we'd be like, we get all excited thinking that he's coming home and then he doesn't come home. And it's like, or the, he says the law doesn't apply. And I'm just like, what do you mean? I thought you said it applied. Why? Why? And, uh, um, you know, just think about it now. It's just like, ugh. <laughs> it's just, it's really, it's really disheartening to just see how, our people are treated, which brings me back to your question about 
slavery and the separation of families and um, for centuries here, for centuries. And what made me really see the correlation between Jim Crow, between uh, (laughs) so many different things, uh, mass incarceration and systemic racism and you know, the civil rights movement and um, just so many things, just historically, I'm, I'm I guess I, I would say I'm a, a natural historian. Like, I just like looking at history and thinking about how we as a people have been. There's so many layers to this. I'm sorry, Lauren. You asked no, a really please. like deep question, and that's why I was I was just in the beginning of this. I was just like, you know, I don't even want to talk about the election because there's so many layers to you know what we. I'll, I'll sum it up like this: what we have to be okay with living in this society, like we we just in order to survive, uh, we just you know. We ourselves, I think as black people, just have to be okay with um, maybe we not we're not okay, but in order for us to survive fully and understanding (laughs) what the society has been and what the society fails to reckon with um, is this disillusion, disillusionment about, you know, how we have treated our, you know, our black people here in this country like it's just been we've been we we talk about separation of borders you know with um, people that were immigrants and what that looks like I'm like for me I'm like um, we've been doing this for centuries this is not new like we've we've been doing this for a really long time Um, slavery did that if you go to Brian, Brian Stevenson's museum you'll see that slavery did that Slavery separated our families. Slavery, um, you know, caused all of this uh, harm to us for centuries. You know, you know, you think about I think about roots. I think about so much of, you know, our families. I think about our intelligence. I think about how mothers were afraid to show that their children were intelligent because the the threat of any intelligence may mean I may lose my child. If that child advances, if she's smart or she knows how to to cook really well, or if she knows how to, um, you know, pick cotton really well, they may want to sell her, you know, to someone else, or they may want to sell my son to someone else. So I just... You know, I feel like I feel the pain of our ancestors in this work. And and I was saying that I, I didn't talk about this, but I swear when I began to talk about this in 2014, I felt like the ancestors were literally waking me up. I swear, I swear, I, I swear I couldn't sleep. I felt like they were waking me up because prior to this, I am not an advocate. I am not. And I did not study, um, you know, uh, criminal justice reform. I did study law. I did study law. Um, and I was on the verge of working to, to become a lawyer. But I thought I was going to be an entertainment lawyer. Like I, I used to work in the music industry. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to be in the entertainment law and I'll just do that kind of stuff because that was my that was my love. Like for me, music is my refuge. And so, um, yeah, I, 
<laughs> my father's situation came up for me. And that moment came up when the Obama administration said that they wanted to reform the criminal justice system. And I said, oh, my God, OK, I got to say something. And I had to say something because I, I truly believe that they were speaking to me like, yeah, you have to say something for us like this is this is for us. And I feel like I st- and 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 I can't and I now know that it's true. Like this was my purposeful work like this is this is this is purposeful work uh, for me. So when we talk about the correlation, it's 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 in some way um, healing healing uh all the harm that has been done for those that are like me for those ancestors that have been separated from their family members i I feel to some degree that i am uh you know hopefully um being able to share some degree of what this experience is like so that people really fully know what it feels like to be separated from your parent due to um mass incarceration so let's bring it back before we go forward because I should have started with this I should have led with this by just saying that like thank you for hopping on here truly and sharing something that is emotionally a lot in more ways than one during a time that is emotionally a lot in more ways than one so I want to like check in with you and be with you in that way before we even begin to move on Thank you. I appreciate that. Yes, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. So it's it's a lot to have, you know, a mic here and your earplugs here and And a stranger here. And and it's just a lot. So I want you to know that, like, this space is as much yours as it is ours. And I'm just equally as grateful that you are on here sharing all the things that you've learned throughout the, your years. I appreciate that. <laughs> of course. Of course. Yeah, Before I we move forward. This. It's of a course. conversation. So, I, you know, I feel like I, I could be in conversation with you. So I would have said no if I didn't feel like it. But, you know, that's why I started with, like, you know, the whole election thing. I don't even want to talk about that. Like, yeah, I don't want to talk about that. Yes. Yeah, I feel like um, mass incarceration has been ignored for so much of all of this, you know, like we're literally screaming at the top of our lungs to help to, you know, bring some of these families together who have been separated for decades. You know, it's been a generation of mass incarceration. That's thir- that's literally 30 years. My father's been incarcerated over 30 years. So like, what are we doing as a society? We need to reckon, you know, um, Brian Stevenson says this. We need to reckon with the fact that hello, we have a problem. How are we going to move forward ever if we don't reckon with these issues? So, yeah, it, it is. Um, it's heavy at times. Some days I'm great. Some days I'm just like ugh, exhausted. Yeah. And I just woke up. So how am I exhausted? But yeah, <laughs> yeah. wake up with exhaustion. So Evan, what what keeps you going like when you're having um Right. You have a whole organization that revolves around a topic that can be, you know, like you said, exhausting some days, exciting the others. Like on the exhausting days, what keeps you going when um, building on We Got Us Now? The young people that I've been able to connect with, 
you know, We Got Us Now is a very strengths-focused organization. I should tell you about We Got Us Now. Please, <laughs> so, please do. Yeah, yeah. I, didn't I knew it was going to come that. up. It was going to come yeah, up. Yeah, it's just like, I didn't even talk to you about what this is. <laughs> so, so, okay, I'm the founder of... I'm the founder CEO of We Got Us Now. We Got Us Now is a national, nonprofit, nonpartisan organization built by, led by, and about children and and young adults impacted by parental incarceration. And our mission is to engage, educate, elevate, and empower this historically invisible population through the use of digital narratives. We uh, create these safe and inclusive spaces because as you can see, like this is a really heavy topic and a lot of young people do not like to share because of the shame, stigma, and trauma that's associated with this. And so a lot of the work that we've done was create these advocacy-led campaigns to create awareness about this issue first. Um, you know, we've created several digital narratives in partnership with different people. One of the first things that we've ever done was a digital campaign with Google. And and for three years, we produced this digital campaign with them uh, called Love Letters, which we basically showed the unbreakable bond between an incarcerated parent and their child. But we like to use content because that's my love. You know, creativity for me is is a beautiful way for me to express and um, share and and, you know, in a really um, in a, I guess, a positive and a, a more lighthearted way to get young people to open up and to let them know that they're not alone. Because ultimately, you know, beyond just the storytelling aspect of it, which I feel like is is incredibly important. I feel like technology is the doorway and storytelling is the key. Like, I literally believe that um, technology has opened up so much um, for me in this moment for expression. Um, and it's very cathartic. And so beyond the storytelling and, and, and me understanding how cathartic that is, I wanted to be able to do that, but I wanted to also take it a step further because so much of my life I've been experiencing this, um, tragedy. Uh, and so I don't want to just tell the story. I wanted to go beyond that and really ensure that we were able to utilize these voices at the forefront of, you know, any strategic initiatives that were happening as it relates to practices and policies around criminal justice reform and really identifying those things as it relates to children of incarcerated parents, which is to to ultimately to help to keep our families connected because like, why are our families like suffering? Why are we, you know, so disjointed? It's enough that you've taken our parent away, but you know, there's so many barriers just to stay and remain connected to your parent when they're, when they're incarcerated. So we wanted to do that. We wanted to ensure that we create fair sentencing. As I was sharing with you, you know, there's so many people that have been over incarcerated and nobody cares. It's like, you know, you, you did the crime. So you, you do the time, but they don't realize, you know, how, how really, um, over how, how, how systemic racism plays a huge part in, in that sentencing and how, you know, it ties into what you were just talking about slavery and, and, and bodies, black bodies and, and, and the holding of black bodies and the history of this country. And so, you know, my goal is to ultimately end this mass incarceration. I don't want another generation of mass incarceration. So beyond just telling the story, cause I don't want to, you know, we're black people. So we, we, we tend to tell our stories, the, the griot, right? We tend to sell our stories, um, 
through our uh through storytelling, through our mouths. But I I wanted to do something in addition to that. So for me, it was ultimately to end this thing of mass incarceration. I hope there are no more children of mass incarceration. I I really ultimately would love to be able to end that. And then, Ebony, where did you start um, when you first came up with the organization? Like, where do you start with an idea like that? Uh. (laughs) You're just like, yeah, we did it. And then boom, like now I'm going to change the world. So step up. (laughs) Uh, Okay, let me tell you what happened. So how I got started in this is that I um, was it was a personal it was a personal journey. So I was advocating to support my dad because of the Obama administration, them saying that they wanted to, you know, right the wrongs. And at that point, he had been incarcerated for 25 years. And I just felt like I needed to say something. And so um, he had a pro bono attorney already talked to her. She was based in D.C. And I told her, you know, like, I want to be able to support, you know, some of his advocacy. I wish, you know, I want to I want to tell his story because I was at that point I was um, producing some films and, you know, working on storytelling. And I just felt like I wanted to tell his tell some parts of this story because I was like, if your father's story, correct? Yeah. Yeah. My dad's story, because if my if my father's story was out there, then maybe I could create some awareness around this and the president and, you know, his his administration could see and, you know, see our story, how long we've been going through this. Uh, The attorney tells me that she's like, wow, this sounds excellent. I wish you had something now because on Friday I'm going to the White House because they have this initiative for children of incarcerated parents. I said, what? She said, yeah. I said, children of what? She said, there's an initiative at the White House for children of incarcerated parents. Now I'm a pretty informed person. But I had never heard this word before. And I'm like, what are you talking about? There's a word for what I had been living. Are you kidding me? Oh, my God. Um, (laughs) I got to say something. What do you need? I'll write anything. So I wrote like this four page letter to President Obama just saying like, you have a daughter. You have you have two daughters. My father has two daughters. I have two brothers as well, but I'm sure that you could relate, you know, like we really want our dad home. And I said all this stuff and that just just to say, like, just me. That was the first time I really got to really like just kind of journal and express and write. And I love to write, but I never really wrote about this because I didn't even see it. But like all of this stuff started pouring out of me and that literally propelled me like it's almost literally put a battery in my back because it was just like, wow, really? There's there's a name for what I have been living all this time. And I had no idea about that. Like, how did I not know? And so, um, you know, going on further with the journey, um, I just began to create content. I created a, a, a website. My father came up with the name. We created the website years before, but I just revamped it. It was called inprison.net. And then after creating inprison.net, I also created a digital short called Hope for Father's Day because my siblings and I, there's four of us. So I have two younger siblings and an older brother. And my older brother had been 
speaking and trying to do some things, you know, in alignment with our, with the pro bono attorney, but my younger siblings, they weren't open to really speak on this. And so I, you know, before I even stepped forward and said that I was going to do this work, I asked them, was it okay that I share? Because, you know, I wanted to try to work to try to get our dad home. And I explained to them, I said, you don't have to say anything, but I just want, want you all's blessing and approval. And they said, no, of course, you know, you do what you can. We just don't want to be involved. And I respect I respected that. So um, fast forward to me just be being saying like, listen, you guys, at the end of the day with me and my siblings, I'm going to call this short hope for Father's Day, because whatever day daddy comes home, it'll be considered Father's Day for us. <laughs> so so we we created that. We created a change.org petition. It's change.org forward slash free Underwood. And basically from there, I just started to just, it was almost like a journal. <laughs> like me just doing all this work was, I didn't realize how cathartic, I didn't realize how much stuff I had, you know, dormant inside of me, how much pain I, um, I had, and I literally, I guess it it was a, an an effort of self-healing. It's been in the process, you know, today, that's what it feels like for me. This is today, but it it feels like, you know, this was an effort of self-healing. And so, and I wouldn't stop. I just didn't stop. Like I was doing it. Remember I told you like things, I literally feel like the ancestors were waking me up. I just, I don't, I don't know where I got this energy. I I, I attribute it. I'm a spiritual person. So I attribute it to that because there's no way if you would ask me five years or even a year prior to me starting that work, would I have done this publicly? I would have told you, hell no, there's no way I'm talking. There's no, hell no. There's no way I'm talking about this. So I know that there's something greater in me that has been pushing me because once I started, I swear, Lauren, I could not stop. It became a 24 hour mm. job. But OK, hello, bills still come like like right. Like they're still. Bills. Yes. yes. <laughs> so I'm like, OK, well, what can I do? I, I, I need to keep doing this work like I can't stop. I'm not going to law school now. I'm going to focus on this. Wow. But what am I going to do? And so I decided that I was going to apply. So I applied for the Source Justice Fellowship and I also applied for a nonprofit. And people say, you know, you you apply for a nonprofit. I don't know why I applied for a nonprofit, too, by the way. I was just like, well, I need something to create some income. Right. <laughs> I don't even know anything about nonprofit at this point. I'm just like, OK, I, I, um, I actually did like a a, 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 a summer course um, on nonprofit. Um, yeah. On nonprofit <laughs> like management and what that looked like. And I did that for like a summer um, in addition to talking to like a mentor about it who works in the nonprofit field. And they kind of like just share with me what I should do. But again, like I didn't even have the nonprofit. I just was doing some study on it. So I said, okay, I'm going to do that for a summer while I'm still doing this work. And in addition to that, I um, applied for this fellowship. Applied twice. I didn't get it the first time. The second time I got the fellowship. But I got before I got the fellowship, I got the nonprofit. And I was like, oh, my God. But wait, I'm in the second interview of this fellowship. So I got to put the nonprofit. Yeah, I got to put the nonprofit on hold because what if I get the fellowship and and you can't have a nonprofit? So I was like, okay, I won't do that yet. So let me do this. (laughs) (laughs) And then before I even get the fellowship, like literally a month before I got invited to, um, DC and 
while I was there, I went to this event at the White House. I got invited to the White House for like families. Again, I told you my father's pro bono attorney. She was doing work. And so got invited to this event, went to the White House. And it was all about, you know, this is when Obama was doing those waves of clemencies. So I was like, oh, my God, you know, this might be like a big moment. Maybe he's going to say something about our dad. He did not. But the beautiful thing was that we ended up there was a special dinner that was hosted by Google. And Mm. at that dinner, I met Google executives found out about me. They understood. Yeah. Yeah. Not even though they like knew and they they came to me and were like, we saw your hope for Father's Day and we want to honor, you know, your work. And we'd love to do something for Mother's Day and Father's Day. And I was like, wow, yeah, let's do it. So it's like an ode to my story, you know, and I guess my journey with my dad. Um, and basically, yeah, that that's that's how that I did that. And then I got the fellowship and then I began to travel all across the United States um, sharing about Hope for Father's Day, but also sharing about my story and starting to see in my research, because that's what I did for the fellowship. It was really researching about how to amplify this issue because I was like, damn, I'm an adult and I'm finding out about this. Imagine if I was a teenager or even like 10 years old, if I would have had a community, this would be incredible. Like if I knew that people cared when I was that age. Wow. I probably would have had an entire different experience with this. And so again, in the effort to not, um, you know, not leave anybody out, I wanted to make sure that I, I was able to, um, just share as much information as possible with young people. I wanted them to know that they were not alone and that there were organizations across the country that did this work. And so that's how I got to, um, really diving into it. And as I began to dive into it, I I started to see that a lot of the work was, it was almost like it was focused. It was like a, a mon people focused on it as if it was a monolithic issue. And it's not. It's like, you know, I I have a parent that's in federal prison. That's different than having a parent that's in a state prison, which is in the same state. My father's in federal prison. He can be in anywhere, any state in the United States. But when your parent is in a federal uh, in a state prison, they're within that specific state. But then if your parent is in a jail, they're usually in the county that you live in. So that experience, you know, the distance, um, those are all different experiences. And when you think about relationship building and remaining connected, sometimes the journey of having a parent in and out of jail is, you know, is extremely different than having one that is, you know, has been in jail for years or decades. However, the pain is all the same. And so, um, yeah, it's it's. uh it's something that I wanted to really, really dive more deeply into and really get to the core of it because I felt like, you know what, we're not going to leave out any segment of the population. We're not going to just focus on children that have parents in state prisons or children that have parents in jails. We want to give the full breadth of this. And so after the fellowship, it just made me realize that I needed to establish something for us. And so that was how We Got Us Now came about, because I realized that we needed to, you know, really be able to focus and and give all children 
and young adults, because they're at 18, there is no magic button where all of a sudden this pain just magically goes away and I'm fine. As a mm-hmm. matter of fact, yeah, as a matter of fact, it becomes even more um, daunting. You start to realize, like it starts to show up in areas of your life and you're like, damn, I didn't even know that I had these issues or that I was grappling with these issues. Even if your parent comes home, I've learned from some young people, like that's what happens. What I was really interested in what you're talking about is this conversation on language um, and how important learning terms like mass incarceration were to you um, after you learned when you were adult, but also to all the children and young adults that you're helping now. Um, So I want you to dive more into that and talk about how language can be used as a tool for empowerment or a tool for um, change. And then I can share how that has how that brilliantly ties into my colorful Nana as well. But in your opinion, how is language a tool for empowerment and change? Well, this interesting you're asking this question because there is a movement right now specifically. Well, there has been a movement around for years, but now people are sort sort of paying attention more attention to it. Uh, around language even and how people refer to people that are incarcerated. So, um, you know, for many years, people have been called prisoners, um, inmates, offenders. Uh, That language is just so (laughs) dehumanizing, especially if you're home or even if you think about it as it relates to a child in reference to their parent. Um, You know, former inmate, (laughs) former uh, felon, like these words are just, just so negative. And so, um, yeah, there, a lot of it is just so violent, nonviolent, like you could be a violent offender if you were in a situation and there was a gun in the, in the, uh, in the, in your presence while you were arrested, you may not have even had the gun in your hand. You might not even have any affiliation with the gun, but because the gun was there, that's a violent offense. I mean, so many things and so many layers to this experience that, um, people are just not really aware of. And so language is important because, you know, again, it, um, it defines, you know, language defines a lot of, uh, who we are, you know, how we communicate with others and it can be empowering or it can be, you know, really negating. And so, um, for me and for the work that we do with children and young adults um, impacted by parental incarceration is really important for us to recognize, you know, language and be mindful of using words instead of, you know, very mindful of incarcer- not using words like prisoners, inmates, um, using referring to those individuals as returning citizens, you know, some people like that or um our parents or, you know, you know, you don't have to refer to them as being incarcerated, you know, that that's your parent. Like you don't have to, you don't have to dive deeply. You don't have to dive more deeply. Just being, and and just being, being, um, understanding the sensitivity around it. There's a lot of sensitivity around, um, just this experience is again, it's, it's, 
it's so necessary to have these conversations just just to share with people because so many people just have no idea about the different layers in which we are harmed, um, not only by the language, but by the system that continues to um, keep our families incarcerated. Link, that's a great question. Language, you know, my father is incarcerated with a mandatory minimum. Um, that, That language is a farce. There's no minimum if he has a life sentence. Like, why are you even putting, including that word in this language? Like language is so much a part of the divisiveness of how we've been, our, our families have continued to be incarcerated. What I learned in this journey is that it's not solely black bodies that have been incarcerated. I learned that, gosh, like I've seen Indian Americans, I've seen Native Americans, I've met Asian Americans, I've met, um, you know, tons of Hispanic and and Latinx and 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 white, many a white young, you know, daughters and sons that have been impacted by this journey. But we have as black people, black people have been more disproportionately um, impacted than any other group. And um, it's just we 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 have to be mindful of the language that we use and and everyone should be mindful of the language that we use around this. And so a lot of the narrative is always uplifting, like, yeah, children of incarcerated parents, black children of incarcerated parents are seven times more likely than, you know, their peers to have a parent. Like, why, 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 why are we identifying it like this? Like, it, it just makes it like, you know, we're just these, Again, it's all around it's all about how you phrase it. It's all around the language that you use. We have to be very mindful of how this is ultimately impacting our psyches, our our young people, our people. Like what are we doing to this community that we keep putting these negative narratives on top of it? So language, just an incredible, incredible, a really important question. I mean, we can have a whole discussion on that alone. Hmm. No, so why I dived into that too and like why I think it's so crucial to also focus on language for in topics of mass incarceration and any topic of systemic racism. Um, for me, like when I felt the most control in my feelings and how I was digesting my own identity was when I learned the different language and the different words I could use to um, talk about, in this case, my relationship to my hair, right? So something simple is that growing up, I found in a very um, homogeneous community, a very white community, I found my hair to be an insecurity. Um, but as I, you know, study the topic and got older and learned more and met more people, I realized that no, 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 it's an aspect of systemic racism that isn't talked about enough. Um, it isn't talked about in a way that that that's given agency. Um, so simple example, but a moment where I was like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, I need to stop referring to it as a quote unquote insecurity and more of as a systemic issue that we can all dive into. Um, so thank you for sharing that, too, about the language, linguistic side of it. Um, I love that. Amazing. So I see this more as like our ending chapter, our last few questions. Um, something I'm really interested in um, 
as I get more into research and history is how our identities as black women, um, I'm a queer woman. So how my identity drives me um, and my passions um, and what I'm interested in focusing on. So I'm, I would love to hear more about how your, your identity, which you've already dived into in so many lovely ways, um, but more specifically how your race, your gender, um, how that, 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 that creates a space in your mind um, and in your actions when you, when you do work for We Got Us Now. And maybe this is where you can tie in some of your writing, your poetry, or if you do poetry, um, and how you, you make sense of these feelings. Wow. I do want to say something about my hair, though, because that's a huge part of who I am. Yes, please do. (laughs) I'd rather start there. And and you said that. I'm like, oh, yeah, like that's that's huge. Like, that's huge. Like, you know, I I love braids. I always love braids. Um, They play a huge part in my identity, um, I believe. Uh, My great grandmother, my great grandmother is Native American. Um, she used to wear two pony, t- two braids, two long braids. Um, I had the opportunity to know her. Uh, thankfully, my father's grandmother and uh, she lived in South Carolina. And I was always fascinated that she was like a real to, you know, when I was younger, like she's an Indian, like I'm meeting a real Native American person. (laughs) Yeah, I thought it was incredible. I was at a young age. I just thought it was incredible. And so, you know, and I was just always fascinated with their hairstyle. Like I was always fascinated with Egyptians and, um, you know, African braids. I just always loved I just love the way they, they look. I always love the way they look. I always had braids, like for the majority of my life. Like even when my mother did my hair, I remember being so like, after my hair was done, I was feeling myself like, yeah, I got my braids done. <laughs> <laughs> always, always. So um, being able as a black woman to, to, to be able to express myself through my hair was so very important for me, especially in this moment. It felt very empowering. So being able to have my braids and they and and they support me like at the end of the day, I don't have to worry about getting up in the morning and doing my hair. <laughs> my, my braids like literally are, you know, <laughs> someone said that that's your that's your identity. Like so much of it is your identity. I was like, that's not on purpose. Like I didn't do that on purpose. It was just easier to just like not have to worry about my hair in the morning. I can just continue to work because the work was so important. But I realized it's so much a part of who I am. It has become my identity. When people see me, they relate, you know, to the braids. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I definitely wanted to say that because of how you express yourself and just understanding my colorful Nana and wanting to be able to share about how hair is a huge part of my identity and my braids definitely um, signify truly who I am. I'm rooted, um, you know, and yeah, er everything about these braids, (laughs) they're everything to me. So thank you for allowing me to share about that because that's a, that's a, it's a big deal for me. My braids are my protection. They are definitely here and have supported me. <laughs> mm. Thank God I can put my hand braids. No, I <laughs> still love, look good. I love how you say that. I love how you say that they they support you, right? That's such an interesting way to put it. That like your hair supports you, but I get that in a lot of ways because growing up myself, like the birth of this project is that like. I never felt like I had a space to explore my hair or or see my hair in something other than 
for simple, the simplest terms, ugly or like difficult or um, unworthy, right? Like all of these, these words that are, are traumatic in a lot of ways, because then you start to see yourself as that, you know? Um, and I think that by doing this work and to talking to, pe- to talking to people and understanding how your hair can support you and even greater than that, understanding greater parts of yourself can support you. Um, and I guess l- let's dive more into that, right? Like as you've gotten older, what are some things that you've learned from, you know, your relationship to your hair um, and well, anything? Been, yeah, yeah. I've had all kind of hairstyles. So, you know, definitely younger braids. My mother um, was like a, she was like the family beautician. So she did everybody's hair. So my hair was always done. So she had all different styles. And my mother's very creative. Um, my sister, she decided to have locks and she had locks like all the way down to her, um, down her back. They were oh, very wow. long. And then she just cut them. And then she had a, like a short hairstyle and now her hair is growing out. Um, but for me, I don't know. I just always had a a love for braided hairstyles. And then, you know, after a while, I was like, okay, you know, I'm in adulthood. So I'm going to go and I'm going to get a relaxer and I got a relaxer and, you know, straighten my hair. And I kept my hair straight for a long time. My hair was long too. I'd have my hair um, straightened for a long time. And then after a while, I was just like, once I started to get into this work, no, you know what happened? I, I traveled. I, after college, I traveled, I went to China and when I went to China, I went there. My sister was living there because my sister's a fashion designer. Shout out to my sister, too, by the way. <laughs> She's, uh, she just uh, was in New York Fashion Week. Oh, her incredible. Congratulations. Yeah, her brand, yeah, her, her brand is Oak and Acorn brand. Um, it's a first denim, first Harlem's first denim brand. Um, wow. Yeah, she's dope. I'll send you some stuff so you can see. Um, but all that to say that... Um, when I went to China, she was living in Shanghai at the time. That was my first like time really out of the country, like far away from out of the country. And I was there for like a month. And when I came back, oh my God, I started to see, I saw my, I saw me and I just saw black people here in, in, I live in New York. I just saw black people differently. I was like, why are we walking around with straight hair? We must look crazy. Like I started to see us. I was like, we look crazy. What are we doing? Like, why are we not proud of our hair? I just, I don't know why. It's just like I had an awakening. Yeah. I was like, why are we not? It made me so mad that I just, and, and, and at the same time, my hairdresser, who I had been my hairdresser for like several years at that point, she had, uh, she was Dominican. She's doing my hair, Inez. Rest in peace, Inez. She um, had like a sudden um, illness and she ended up passing away. And, you know, I was very funny. My mother, like I said, my mother did my hair for most of my life. So now I found a hairdresser. I'm living far from my mother. I found a hairdresser and she she's not here. So I'm like, all of this stuff was tumbling down on me. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to go natural. People were starting to go natural. Remember all the videos on YouTube started to come out. I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm just going (laughs) to do it. You know, I I feel like that's kind of crazy to be walking around straightening my hair like this. I just don't know why. It just 
it looked absolutely nuts to me. I said, and I never did it because I wanted to look like a white person or I I just did it because it was a style. But I started to recognize that I should be, I should love my hair and I should really just get to know my hair. And as I began to know my hair, I was like, wow, it is really beautiful. But it was, it was not that easy to manage either. My hair, you know, I'm not, I didn't know how to do hair. So I was just like, oh gosh, what am I going to do with this hair? (laughs) And so I, and, and, and then in the midst of work, what became apparent was braids. And so that's how I got back to braids because again, they were protective. They were health. They just were my sanctity. Like I don't, I don't have to worry about my hair because I knew that the braids, because I, because of my hair texture, I can put it in braids and I can, and it can look nice for a long time. And I know how to maintain my braids. And so the one thing I did know, I, I definitely always wanted to keep my hair nice. My mother was like, don't play. You better have that scarf on your head at night. So <laughs> <laughs> After I did your hair, you better have your scarf on your head. Yeah. So I, I knew how to keep a scarf on my head, and I knew that I always wanted my hair to look nice. And so, in an effort to do that, I said the braids. The braids were again; they were like my protection. They supported me along this journey. They have been my support along this journey. And so, yeah, hair is is very much. I'm actually about to take it out. Actually, for the next two months. That to the end of the year, I'm going to take them out because I've been having them in for so long. I'm like, I got to take them out. Not these same ones, but I'm just saying like, you know, just keep braiding. I got to give it a break. But I've been gone. I've been going so much. So on camera, I'm like, OK, I got to take these braids out for a minute and just kind of just chill and let my hair just kind of breathe. And I think it's almost like uh, <laughs> it's me taking a breath from 2022. Like I'm just letting everything just letting everything out. But again, you know, in support of my hair. I love the hair. I could talk about hair all day. Hair is very, our hair is very special because of all the ways in which we can do it, the way in which we, the ways in which we can style it, the ways in which we, it, it just flows. It's, it's, be, our hair is beautiful. Your hair is beautiful, Lauren. It's beautiful. And we should know that and we should honor our crowns. Our crowns are beautiful. So, yes. Make sure you talk to everybody about their hair. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you for thank you for highlighting that. And a question for myself: Do you ever feel like an identity shift, like when you change your hairstyle and you're like, like oh I, God, I wore yes. um, a head wrap to a work meeting, and I work for a black company, but they were like, oh, like Lauren, like okay, got your head scarf on, whatever, and I was just like, okay, like this is something that's like being noticed, and I enjoyed that, but it's taking me a while to feel that joy. Um, do do you ever do you still have that thought where it's like if I take my braids out I'm taking on another like entity or not really absolutely yeah I feel like I look like a totally different person it's true true. (laughs) yeah 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 it's true yeah you do I do yeah you do take on a different entity it does feel different it does it does again like this has been so much of my identity but it does feel like something else but it's okay. Like, you know, my sister, she'll have, like I told you, she had locks for years. Now her hair is short. Sometimes it's in an Afro. Sometimes it's in a braid. Like she got all these different styles. I'm so like plain Jean. I always have always the same types of styles. You know, that's why I like the braids. It's like, oh, okay, Ebony. <laughs> I, have to say, I don't switch it up too much because I'm so, 
I'm not focused on it, but it's very important to me. Like my hair has to look nice. So um, at the end of the day, I think, yeah, I think that it definitely does make you feel different. Um, I know I'm going to feel different, you know, <laughs> I know I'm going to feel different. And I don't even know. I know my hair is long now, too. So I'm, I'm interested in see, just seeing how it is and, you know, trying. That's another thing, you know, because so much of us, so much of how we've been. Again, this goes back into the whole, you know, history of black hair and the negativity around black hair. So much of our hair has been like demonized or, you know, negated and just very like a really negative narrative around it when um when we, we it, 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 it has so much identity. It can do so many different things. What I learned in Becoming Natural is that like all the different oils, like for instance, I found hemp oil and hemp oil is like mm. magic on my hair. Hemp seed oil is like, I don't know what happens. My hair absolutely loves it. It just eats it up. It's great. Coconut oil, argan oil, like all these different oils. Like you get to try all these different things and you just see how your texture is crazy. It's for me. It's, 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 to me, it's amazing. It's just like, wow, we are we are incredible people. We are incredible people. Like just, our, you know what is you know what it's symbolic of? It's just like how resilient it's, it's our hair is as resilient as we are. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's what I feel. I feel like our hair is just as resilient as we are. Um, and to me, that's so powerful. That speaks volumes. If you really think about it, like that's what it is. <laughs> no, we're no. on a whole other journey. She's no, I love that line. I love that line. Our hair is as resilient as we are. I think so. I, I know so. I like yeah, that. See? Okay. I like that a lot. So let's close it on this, Ebony. Um, what do you think is the intersection of the conversations that my colorful Nana has about black hair, generous thinking, identity, social advocacy, and the amazing topics that we got us now is working to embody, create, um, increase these conversations? What do you think is the intersection between between both our bodies of work? Number one, it creates dialogue and community, right? I think that's really, really important. And again, if we talk about the intersectionality of our work, it's the affirming of the positivity of these experiences, right? Like in the process of me developing We Got Us Now, I've been able to build this huge community all across the country. It's a nationwide organization. So I've identified young people from all across the country who are now in community with one another where so many of them have felt alone in this experience. Similarly, you and I have had this conversation. We talked about both of our experiences and then we even took it a step further as black women and, you know, our identities. But then we took it a step further and brought it to the commonality that we share, which is our hair and like how we are working with our hair or what are we doing with our hair or how our hair identifies us to be able to have a conversation that can show um the intersectionality of all of those things, I think is a beautiful thing. Like, I think we're ultimately doing the same thing, but in different, in different segments of society, I guess. Right. Or different conversations. I don't even know how to describe this. How do I, how do I say that? (laughs) 
you know, no, what, I'm trying, you know right. what I'm trying to that say, right? right. Yeah, like I'm, I'm ultimately what we're trying to, what we are doing is being able to affirm. I, I feel like that. It's like affirming in a positive way because so much of it has been negated. This is what I want to say. Yeah. So much of, of what we've experienced has been negated, but what we're doing is in a really positive way, affirming Right. And and creating a new a new narrative for us. And it's beautiful that we've been able to do that within this conversation as it relates to hair, as it relates to family, as it relates to lineage. I mean, we brought all that up like you helped me bring all that up. I, I, I paid homage to my great grandmother, you know, through my hair. I, I paid homage to 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 my dad. I paid homage to my mom, to my like all my family. Like it was like a fan. I, I felt very comfortable in this conversation because I was able to express my myself and share so many aspects of myself. So the commonality is that we got us now is a family. And then very similarly, you extended another branch and just showed me the commonality and how, you know, even I'm just meeting you now, but still like it feels there's an extension of family somewhere. Right. So, yes. Thank you. No, thank you. That's perfectly said. Um, Perfectly said. I have one last question that you just made me think of. Okay. Um, last one was just black hair. Why should we continue to have conversations on black hair? Sorry. I was going to say because these girls need to stop putting these damn wigs on. No. <laughs> Oh gosh. That's so bad. Okay, no. Y'all express yourself how you want to. You express yourself how you want to. But no, we need to love our hair. You don't need why you got a wig on? I mean, if you want to just be expressive, okay. But come on. Love your hair. Yeah, our hair is beautiful. That's why we need to have conversations about hair. This has been amazing. Um It has been. I'm so passionate about the topic and I'd love to see how it has connected to so many different um, organizations and things that are already ongoing. So thank you so much. Thank you for the work that you're doing and for bringing this conversation into And wait, really quickly, My Colorful Nana is, is it's an ode to your grandmother, right? It is. It is. Why? Um, so Michael and I was inspired by my Nana because I remember it was Christmas like three years ago and I was looking through a bunch of boxes and I, I was at a time where I wasn't loving my hair. I wasn't loving my identity. I was in college. I was a freshman and I was just like, I just remember those were my feelings. So when I found this picture of my grandmother, which is our like our logo now it's like this fro these beautiful eyes like her smile like and I just remember looking at her I was like she looks so beautiful like I want to look like her and that was like the first moment that I really truly remember feeling that way about black hair and like seeing myself and someone that I'm blood related to as well just like allowed me to feel that way and like once that unlocked where I was like I want to look like you I saw just like any any kind of hair from our people as this just like magnificent most fantastic um 
wow. you know, style. So the picture was like, it just, it just drew me into the whole topic. And then I asked my Nana about when was this taken? She was like 1963. And then she was like, you know, froze weren't like, she was like, it was just like, like she was just reminiscing at that point. She's like, you know, froze weren't like a cool thing back then. And like going into it. So like I got taste and driplets of like the history of just being a black woman with a fro in the sixties and like how she was sent home from work and how she came back with the same fro and then she was fired. And it's just like created this whole like storyline of um, what black hair means. So then I started to revolve my major around it. I want to get my PhD and yeah, I want to get my PhD in black hair and um, it's just, there's so much to it that could not even be like spoken about in an hour long interview. Wow. I've just learned that there's so much that we don't know, which is where that language piece really comes in um, for me and for you too. Yeah, that's dope. Yeah, Yeah, that's dope. Good. Please keep going. That's dope. Yeah, absolutely. 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 